This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to The Night Sky, a podcast on the eclipses coming to Kerrville. Over the next 18 months, Kerrville will be the eclipse capital of the world. The first eclipse will be an annular solar eclipse on October 14, 2023, with a total solar eclipse taking place on April 8, 2024. 2023 annular eclipse will be a partial eclipse that will create a ring of fire around the sun. The second will be a total eclipse where full darkness occurs. This podcast, hosted by Andrew Gay and Tom Fox, will celebrate these two eclipses and discuss how the town of Kerrville will prepare for an influx of a quarter million or more visitors, as well as celebrating the dark skies. In this episode, Tom and Andrew visit with Dr. Kim Ardvitson, Associate Professor at Schreiner University of Physics and Speciality in Astronomy. Dr. Ardvitson talks to us about being a professional astronomer and what the upcoming eclipse means for his profession. I know you'll enjoy this episode of The Night Sky. Hello, everyone. Andrew Gay and Tom Fox back for another episode. Uh, today, we're going to talk about The Night Sky with Dr. Kim Arvidson, Associate Professor of Astronomy and Physics at Schreiner University. We are happy to have him with us today. Dr. Arvidson, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your professional background and how you ended up at Schreiner University. <clears throat> I am from Sweden. That's why I sound like this, like a Swedish chef. And I have my undergraduate degree in physics from uh, Lund University in Sweden. And then I went to Iowa State University for my graduate degree in astrophysics. <clears throat> so that's how I ended up in the United States. After that, I was a postdoc at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. And after that, I got my my teaching job at Shrine University, and I've been there for 10 years now. Very nice. Was there any kind of connection between Chicago and Kerrville? Like, how did that kind of come to be? So I just did, I did a national search for the entire United States, and Shriner and I, we picked each other. Aha, I, uh, I see. Had you ever been to Texas before that? No. It was very hot. Yeah, it is very, it's very hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your initial response to once you moved here? Other than, oh my gosh, it's hot. I really like the hill country. I think it is, I think it is a beautiful place. It, it doesn't, if you say Texas to someone who isn't from Texas and know that the thing is enormous it's and huge. has all sorts of environments. If you say Texas, people think of Western movies and West Texas half desert. So if you grew up with that, you are surprised that Texas is so diverse. You're surprised especially, that we don't ride here. Uh, yeah. We don't ride horses to school. You know, drive throughs instead of ride throughs. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Tom, over to you, sir. Sure. Uh, Dr. Harvard, I'm a professor's kid, so we're going to geek out on professorship. Mm -hmm. You told us you went to uh, graduate school at Iowa State? Yes, I did. Did you get a master's or go directly to your PhD? I skipped the master's and went straight for the PhD. What was your uh, dissertation on? It was on observational studies of star-forming regions, uh, high-mass and intermediate-mass stars forming 
try to observe them and see if there are observational differences between them that you can quantify and therefore see, go out and look for in other regions that haven't been found yet. When you took your undergraduate degree in Sweden, did you hope to focus on astronomy or were you more of a kind of, I'm going to say a straight physics student? No, I did hope to study for astronomy. So the undergraduate degree is in physics, but all my electives, so to speak, uh, were astronomy courses at the undergraduate level. They uh, count as physics for the degree because they all rely on physics. And uh, I don't really think that there's too much of a difference between a physics degree and an astronomy degree. We've had the opportunity to visit with uh, academic uh, professionals like yourself on this podcast. We visited with uh, uh, people who are very passionate about the night sky. We've had amateur astronomers and almost to a person, and I say both men and women, they had a moment at some point when they looked up in the sky just with awe and wonder. And at that point, they knew we had a PhD in astrophysics, say, when he was in third grade, an eight-year-old boy. And the teacher had the model of the solar system with the planets. And that's when the light went off in his head. And that's when he fell in love. Did you have one of those moments as a boy? Yeah, I blame 1986. What happened in 1986? Just the year, right? Yes, the year 1986. Two things happened. The Halley's Comet came back. And that was very easy to see where I was living. There are street lights out in a forest. So I thought it was really cool that you can predict that the thing returns every 76 years. Like, how do you know that? And so it made my parents go and take all the astronomy books out of the library so I can read them. Most of it went over my head, but I thought it was cool anyway. And then Voyager 2 passed by Uranus and sent back pictures of Uranus and the rings, which, which it has, and discovered like 10 new moons overnight mm-hmm. that they didn't know about. And I thought, that is extraordinarily interesting. And then my mom said that there are there are people who study these things for a living. That's what they do. And they're called astronomers. And I said, I'm going to be that now. And now I am. So that works out pretty nicely. That's a fantastic story. Can you remind our audience what Voyager 2 was or even is? It's still on. It yes. is a, a space probe that was sent out in, I think it's 1977. I think so went by, stole a bit of Jupiter's energy, uh, rotational energy, so that it goes faster out to the solar system. And then it was had trajectory that went by Uranus and Neptune. So for the first close by flybys of those two worlds. And then it kept going and it is still going because there is nothing to stop it. And so it's, it's still going, it's still on, it's nuclear powered, so it's still on. It has less power than my cell phone, but it's still on. Let's move to a more temporal subject of today. What do you teach at Schreiner? Introductory physics courses, both calculus-based and non-calculus-based. Intro to astronomy courses and an astrophysics course that I made myself. And what's an intro to astronomy, at least the way you teach it? We talk about the night sky. We talk about the solar system, how things move. And so we start close by and then expand out. And then eventually we talk about the stars and the galaxy and eventually cosmology. So we touch on all the things from the very small to the largest possible scales. Is there ever a point in any of the classes that you've taught over the years? I think you said you've been there 10 years. Yes. 
where you get to see what happened to you in that story you were just describing, that kind of magic and that light bulb that goes off. Do you get to see any of that with any of the students? Or have you seen any of that? You can see that moment on the faces of students when they understand something that they want to understand. They go <gasps> breathe in like that. And then they explain what they what they understood. And that is a wonderful moment. Thankfully, it doesn't depend on subject. You can see that in any subject. And it, uh, it, is, a, it is a great moment for any teacher to see. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, so let's let's shift over to focus on. I want to discuss the eclipses that are coming up here to Kerrville, but I wanted to to pick up on something. Let's start with this question. You mentioned something about part of your story about finding your love for astronomy related to coming to understand how someone could predict the flyby of a, a nearby comet, right? So many years in advance and so on and so forth. So do you have any insight into how scientists predict or calculate some of those things, particularly eclipses and how those are going to uh, stretch over the, the globe? That is based on that we know the mechanics of the solar system extraordinarily well. That's why we can say within, I can tell you within the second when the actual eclipse out here, as I said, this building is going to start. That's a, you know, a long process, but so we're standing on the shoulders of giants who figured out how it works and then refine the models to get it to work even better and even better. And uh, we know it so well that you can fly space probes through the rings of Saturn in the little gaps that we have there. And that's 10 astronomical units away. Yes. Yeah, that's, and... that's how well we know these things of the orbits, timings, and basically how things move in the solar system. And that's why we can predict eclipses really well. That's astronomically impressive. I want to test my astronomy knowledge here real quick. I think an, an AU or astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the sun. Yeah, that that's correct? true. That is the average yeah. distance between the Earth and the sun. And that's used in the astronomy world. Yeah. What would you rather have uh, as a me telling you how far it is to Saturn? Would you rather have me say 10 AU, which is easy to remember, or 930 million miles on average? Yeah, the 10 AU is a little bit smaller. It's a little bit, a little bit easier. Smaller number. Yeah. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, I guess first, have you ever witnessed any eclipses yourself? And if so, what was that experience? I have only witnessed partial eclipses. Okay. One, one in Sweden. Then they later looked it up that the total eclipse went over southern Britain and France, and so the continent, okay. uh, and up in Sweden. Then we saw a partial eclipse. It's like when the shadow went over the continental United States in 2017. Right. And for the Great American Eclipse, they had that from Oregon down to South Carolina, and we here had a partial eclipse as a result. So I have seen those, but I not see. a total eclipse. So what do you think, what is the significance of the upcoming two eclipses, the annular one in October, but also the total one in, in April? What does that kind of mean to you since you're in the field of astronomy? We are extremely lucky right here in this spot because there is a part of the world where those two shadows are going to cross and they cross right here over the hill country. X marks the spot. Uh, yeah, and how lucky do you have to be to not have to move and see two eclipses within the space of less than a year. Extremely lucky. Very lucky. Yeah. Now, if I can just maybe also win the lottery, that would be great. We, But we even know someone that had moved here and essentially purchased their home 
right in the center line of totality. Yeah, I know that, that person. Yes, yes, I think we all know yeah. a lot of the same people here. I think he was one of the first uh, guests on this podcast. Yeah. So, over to you. Yeah, tell us about Shriner University, your students, and uh, really the enthusiasm or, or what you feel like you can generate for your discipline at Shriner because of these, the luck we have for having these two eclipses. Is it something that uh, some excitement's building and uh, the students are looking forward to it? I haven't heard too much about what the students think of it yet, but I haven't heard too much of what the general public thinks about the upcoming events either. And my job as an educator is to make sure that the students can see these, these eclipses. And uh, I don't sure, I'm not sure it's hit them yet right. that uh, this is going to happen with such an extraordinary event. Uh, I think it will. I think it will definitely happen uh, for the total eclipse once you get closer to it. And I am looking forward to that. The excitement about the event, I think, actually transcends my discipline. Everyone, regardless if they're interested or not, will be able to enjoy this spectacular event coming to them without having to uh, go here like people from all over the world are going to do. Right. What does it mean as an educator to have occur in this town with the profession you're in and you're the discipline you teach? Oh, I'm the luckiest astronomer in the country, I think, <laughs> in that I don't even have to go anywhere. And there's going to be two passing over my, uh, my hometown here. That, that may not be true. The luckiest is pro probably where the 2017 shadow hits the 2024 shadow. So that would be Carbondale, Illinois. They're the luckiest. I'm the second luckiest. I'll take it back. Uh, you mentioned that you stand on the show. I think you said you stood on the shoulder of giants around the uh, being able to calculate distances and other areas. Does that literally go back to the ancient Greeks who first charted the sky moving forward through the Middle Ages, or is it uh, a little bit closer in time? The one we use now does, it's a little bit closer in time. The ancient Greeks, while they knew that the earth was round and had actually a pretty good idea of how big it was, they thought that it was geocentric. That is, that the earth is at the center of the solar system, mm -hmm. everything else uh, circles around it. We know now that is not true. Still, though, they could predict eclipses because they happen regularly. And if you just notice the, the pattern in the eclipses, you can predict what's going to happen in the future, even if you don't really understand why. And so many cultures can actually do this. The Mayans could do this, uh, could predict when eclipses are going to happen in the future by observing the patterns, regardless if you know why such things occur. So that's pretty impressive, i got to say. Yeah, You can do that even though you don't really know why. How about the broader academic community that you may be a part of with other universities or universities in Texas or even the United States? Is there an excitement about uh, these upcoming eclipses between you and your professional colleagues? Oh, yes. The, uh, <clears throat> the community of astronomers is very excited for uh, the total eclipse. It, it is the time where you can actually see the outer layers of the sun yeah. without having a very expensive space telescope looking at it. You can see it with your eyes when the uh, disk is blocked. And so that's extremely exciting. Andrew? Yeah. So what do you touch on this a little bit when you're talking about 
some of the ancient world and their ability to predict eclipses, even though they didn't really know necessarily what they were doing down to a scientific level. What contributions can eclipses make to the scientific or astronomical community as a, as a whole? Are, are we just set on the fact that we know when they occur? Like you said, standing on the shoulders of giants, we can know that all of those building blocks are in place, or are we still discovering new things due to celestial events like an eclipse? I don't know that we discover too many new things about them. Just because the, what you study is the sun, and the sun is the by far the most well-studied star. I think it is more of a reminder of that we're not even close to being the center of the either the universe or even the, all, our own solar system when they, these things occur. They used to be very afraid of eclipses. Sure. For pretty good reason. Like you're not used to the sun being blocked out. Right. And, you know, when you were talking about, I think about things in movies that you've seen where minds are doing some sacrifice of some kind and they, they predicted the eclipse, to, they knew it was going to happen. Um, you know, that's what comes to mind there. So, uh, but so moving forward to thinking about the future and specifically around technological advancements in inside the astronomical community, I think that maybe we're on the cusp of something very large, I think, in, in, in that respect. Mainly, I'm thinking about the James Webb telescope. Mm -hmm. So are there any advancements in technology that you can think of that, other than the James Webb telescope, that are at the forefront of what's leading astronomy today? The James Webb telescope is the, the latest large space telescopes have been sent out. And that is done so that you don't have to deal with the blurring effect of the atmosphere called seeing. If you put your telescope outside the atmosphere, you don't have to get the blurring. Have you ever seen stars twinkle? Yes. That's they... because the atmosphere moves while you're looking at it. And so that's uh, pretty, but it blurs the image. And so out it goes into the, uh, into the solar system, if you can afford it. And you can't repair it if it breaks. Right. Yeah, so it has some disadvantages. But the picture quality is spectacular. And that's because it's, what is it, 30 years younger than the Hubble Space Telescope, mm -hmm. which still works, even though it's sent up there with 1990 electronics. Yeah. Yeah, it's still stunning, right? That absolutely, so, it and, is. And so that will still work. And there are other, many other space telescopes that are also operating at the same time. Uh, but in different wavelength regimes. There are ones for uh, mainly far infrared light, and then there's one for mainly infrared light, that's James Webb's uh, Space Telescope. And there are ones for ultraviolet, and there are ones for X-rays, there's ones for gamma rays out in space where you, you can see all wavelengths of light, most of which we can't see down here on the surface. Yeah. Is there anything about what's gone on with the James Webb Telescope that stood out to you that you seen so far or heard about or read about? I like the pictures that it took of uh, the Eta Carina Nebula, because that's a star forming region. And I studied them for my dissertation. And that's just such great detail that you now can tell. The drawback is that the region is very large. And so to get a full picture, you have to take a picture here, a picture there and then stitch them together in the computer. And it's faint, so you have to sit on each picture for a long time. And so it takes a very long time to build up a picture like those pretty ones that they see. Yes. Tom? 
where do you, if a student was listening to this or someone in high school and they wanted to follow a career in astronomy, what advice could you give them today? Go for it. If you are interested in something, then you should study it uh, to see if that is something that you want to uh, commit to trying to make your living out of. You, you only have one life, so it should be interesting to the greatest possible extent. And uh, I think you have proven the question I'm about to ask you, but can a person make a living in astronomy? Yes, you can make a living as an astronomer. Most astronomers do what I do, teach at uh, colleges and universities. There are also astronomers who can who work for NASA and work for the companies that NASA contracts to build, say, the James Webb Space Telescope. That was Ball Aerospace did that. They employ astronomers, too, for that purpose. And the way you're being educated, if you're an astronomer or if you're a physicist, is that you're quite good at figuring things out. And so if you can actually use that for transitioning into other fields, that is, I had people who I went to graduate school with who transitioned into quantitative finance. I knew there was a quantitative computing, but I didn't know yeah. there was quantitative like, finance. Quantitative, you can, uh, quantitative finance, because if you can run quantitative models on, say, I don't know, building certain nuclei or how things decay on a subatomic level or doing a quantum mechanics problem that requires very large computations uh, to try to figure out, you can take those uh, quantitative skills and apply it to other fields, say finance or intelligence. Is, is there anything before we wrap up today that you want to leave our listeners with or anything that you want to mention that we did not cover? I didn't stress how extremely lucky we are to be right here in the path of two eclipses within a small amount of time. Andrew, if I ask you, this is, a, this is what happens to students, by the way, is that I throw questions yeah. at them. If you were to guess, and if you were just sitting around on your porch and just hoping for, wow, I wish I would see a total solar eclipse today. How long would you have to wait on your porch on average for one of them, you think? Hundreds of years. I would have said 12 or 13, but we had the 2017 eclipse, so I may be off. So the, uh, yes, you're about right. It's in the order of once every 400 years. Oh, wow. And that is because you have to be in the path of the dark part of the moon's shadow. And that's 120 miles wide. Okay. So you're in a strip that 120 miles wide and the moon and the earth and the sun does not care at all about who is in this path. And so 70% yeah. of the surface is water. So 70% of the time it happens over the ocean. Mm. And, so, and then most of the, the rest of the land of the uh, earth is not very populated deserts right. and things like that. So to have it happen over a populated area is quite unusual over a given spot like us it's once every 400 years roughly and that's the same for an annular eclipse roughly and so how lucky do you have to be to see two of them within a year if each one on average happens to a single spot each once per 400 years so do i double that astronomically lucky is yes you have to be yeah that. yeah 
Do I double yeah. that or do I square it? <laughs> <laughs> it is more on the squaring uh, yeah. side of calculations there. That's how, that's how lucky we are. We don't even have to move to see these things. It's amazing. People will come here for the explicitly so that they have a chance to see the total eclipse. Many thousands of people are, are going to come here is my prediction. Yeah. And so they have to come here to see the total eclipse. We don't have to go anywhere to see the total eclipse. That is how lucky we are right here. I know, and I think I speak for a lot of, of us that live in and around this area that we're planning on, for the most part, just being on lockdown. And we'll be at the, we live, luckily, that my wife and I live close to a golf course, and I'll be home that day. School's not going to be in that day. I don't, Gilbert and I are not planning on coming to the office. I'm planning on walking, strolling right out of my backyard and being able to see it right there. Yeah, the, you, you do have to prepare a little bit for when a small small town like this has visitors, more visitors than people who live here. You do have to prepare a little bit for that. But that's all. You can do that. You can prepare. Yeah. And as long as you do, the that you have to prepare shouldn't take away from the fact that the universe is bringing on a spectacular event here. You don't have to travel to western the western part of the indian ocean like some people do for eclipse cruises you don't have to do that you just have to stay it's amazing yeah. i don't think that anyone will be disappointed unless it's cloudy I, yeah i was just thinking that i know that's the one thing that could throw us off but either way we're extremely excited about it thank you so much dr arvinson for joining us today we're happy to talk to you glad you were able you're to most it. welcome and thank you for having me you bet I forgot to bring out card. All right, rolling. Hello, everyone. Andrew Gay and Tom Fox back for another episode. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the night sky with Dr. Kim Arvidson, Associate Professor of Astronomy and Physics at Shriner University. We are happy to have him with us today. Dr. Arvidson, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your professional background and how you ended up at Schreiner University. <clears throat> I am from Sweden. That's why I sound like this, like a Swedish chef. And I have my undergraduate degree in physics from uh, Lund University in Sweden. And then I went to Iowa State University for my graduate degree in astrophysics. <clears throat> so that's how I ended up in the United States. After that, I was a postdoc at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. And after that, I got my my teaching job at Shrine University, and I've been there for 10 years now. Very nice. Was there any kind of connection between Chicago and Kerrville? Like, how did that kind of come to be? So I, just did, I did a national search for the entire United States, and Shriner and I, we picked each other. Aha, I, uh, I see. Had you ever been to Texas before that? No. It was very hot. Yeah, it is very, it's very hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your initial response to once you moved here? Other than, oh my gosh, it's hot. I really like the hill country. I think it is, I think it is a beautiful place. It, it doesn't, if you say Texas to someone who isn't from Texas and know that the thing is enormous it's and huge. has all sorts of environments. If you say Texas, people think of Western movies and West Texas half desert. So if you grew up with that, you are surprised that Texas is so diverse. You're surprised. Especially, 
we don't ride uh, yeah we don't ride horses to school you know, drive throughs instead of ride throughs <laughs> yes wonderful tom over to you sir sure uh dr harvard's i'm a professor's kid so we're gonna geek out on professorship mm -hmm. you told us you went to uh, graduate school at iowa state yes i did did you get a master's or go directly to your phd i skipped the master's and went straight for the phd what was your uh, dissertation on it was on observational studies of star forming regions uh, high mass and intermediate mass stars forming try to observe them and see if there are observational differences between them that you can quantify and therefore see go out and look for in other regions that haven't been found yet when you took your undergraduate degree in Sweden, did you hope to focus on astronomy or were you more of a, kind of, I'm going to say a straight physics student? No, I did hope to study for astronomy. So the undergraduate degree is in physics, but all my electives, so to speak, uh, were astronomy courses at the undergraduate level. They uh, count as physics for the degree because they all rely on physics. And uh, I don't really think that there's too much of a difference between a physics degree and an astronomy degree. We've had the opportunity to visit with uh, academic uh, professionals like yourself on this podcast. We visited with uh, uh, people who are very passionate about the night sky. We've had uh, amateur astronomers and almost to a person. And I say both men and women, they had a moment at some point when they looked up in the sky just with awe and wonder. And at that point, they knew we had a PhD in astrophysics, say, when he was in third grade, an eight-year-old boy. And the teacher had the model of the solar system with the planets. And that's when the light went off in his head. And that's when he fell in love. Did you have one of those moments as a boy? Yeah, I blame 1986. What happened in 1986? Just the year. Right. Uh, yes, the year 1986. Two things happened. The Halley's Comet came back. And that was very easy to see where I was living. There are street lights just out in a forest. So I thought it was really cool that you can predict that the thing returns every 76 years. Like, how do you know that? And so I made my parents go and take all the uh, astronomy books at a library so I can read them. Most of it went over my head, but I thought it was cool anyway. And then Voyager 2 passed by Uranus and sent back pictures of Uranus and the rings, which, which it has, and discovered like 10 new moons overnight mm -hmm. that they didn't know about. And I thought, that is extraordinarily interesting. And then my mom said that there are, there are people who study these things for a living. That's what they do. And they're called astronomers. And I said, I'm going to be that now. And now I am. So that works out pretty nicely. That's a fantastic story. Can you remind our audience what Voyager 2 was or even is? It's still on. It yes. is a, uh, a space probe that was sent out in, I think it's 1977. I think so. Went by, stole a bit of Jupiter's energy, uh, rotational energy, so that it goes faster out to the solar system. And then it was a trajectory that went by Uranus and Neptune. So for the first close by flybys of those two worlds and then it kept going and it's still going because there is nothing to stop it and so it's it's still going it's still on it's nuclear powered so it's still on it has less power than my cell phone but it's still on let's move to a more temporal subject of today what do you teach at Schreiner introductory physics courses both calculus based and non-calculus based intro to astronomy courses and an astrophysics course that I made myself 
And what's an intro to astronomy, at least the way you teach it? We talk about the night sky, and we talk about the solar system, how things move. And so we start close by and then expand out. And then eventually we talk about the stars and the galaxy and eventually cosmology. So we touch on all the things from the very small to the largest possible scales. Is there ever a point in any of the classes that you've taught over the years? I think you said you've been there 10 years. Yes. Right? Where you get to see what happened to you and that story you were just describing, that kind of magic and that light bulb that goes off. Do you get to see any of that with any of the students or have you seen any of that? You can see that moment on the faces of students when they understand something that they want to understand. They go <gasps> breathe in like that and then they explain what they what they understood and that is a wonderful moment thankfully it doesn't depend on subject you can see that in any subject and it, uh, it is a it is a great moment for any teacher to see yeah amen to that okay so let's let's shift over to focus on i want to discuss the eclipses that are coming up here to kerrville but i wanted to to pick up on something let's start with this question you mentioned something about part of your story about finding your love for astronomy related to coming to understand how someone could predict the flyby of a, a nearby comet, right? So many years in advance and so on and so forth. So do you have any insight into how scientists predict or calculate some of those things, particularly eclipses and how those are gonna uh, stretch over the, the globe? That is based on that we know the mechanics of the solar system extraordinarily well. That's why we can say within, I can tell you within the second when the actual eclipse out here outside this building is going to start that's a, you know a long process but so we're standing on the shoulders of giants who figured out how it works and then refine the models to get it to work even better and even better and uh, we know it so well that you can fly space probes through the rings of saturn in the little gaps that we have there and that's 10 astronomical units away Yes. Yeah, that's, and, that's how well we know these things of the orbits, timings, and basically how things move in the solar system. And that's why we can predict eclipses really well. That's astronomically impressive. I want to test my astronomy knowledge here real quick. I think an, an AU or astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the sun. Yeah, that that's correct? true. That is the average yeah. distance between the Earth and the sun. And that's used in the astronomy world. Yeah. What would you rather have uh, as a me telling you how far it is to Saturn? Would you rather have me say 10 AU, which is easy to remember, or 930 million miles on average? Yeah. The 10 AU is a little bit smaller. It's a little bit, it's a little bit easier. Smaller number. Yeah. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, I guess, first, have you ever witnessed any eclipses yourself? And if so, what was that experience? I have only witnessed partial eclipses. Okay. One one in Sweden, then they later looked it up, that the total eclipse went over southern Britain and France, and so the continent, okay. uh, and up in Sweden, then we saw a partial eclipse. It's like when the shadow went over the continental United States in 2017. Right. And for the Great American Eclipse, they had that from Oregon down to South Carolina, and we here had a partial eclipse as a result. So I have seen those, but I not see. a total eclipse. So what do you think, what is the significance of the upcoming two eclipses, the annular one in October, but also the total one in, in April? What does that kind of mean to you since you're in the field of astronomy? We are extremely lucky right here in this spot because there is a 
part of the world where those two shadows are going to cross and they cross right here over the hill country x marks the spot uh, yeah and how lucky do you have to be to not have to move and see two eclipses within the space of less than a year extremely lucky very lucky mm-hmm. now if i can just maybe also win the lottery that would be great we but we even know someone that had moved here and essentially purchased their home right in the center line of totality yeah i know that, that person too. <laughs> yes i think we all know yeah. a lot of the same people here i think he was one of the first uh, guests on this podcast yeah. so, over to you yeah tell us about shriner university your students and uh, really the enthusiasm or, or what you feel like you can generate for your discipline at Shriner because of these, the luck we have for having these two eclipses. Is it something that uh, some excitement's building and uh, the students are looking forward to it? I haven't heard too much about what the students think of it yet, but I haven't heard too much of what the general public thinks about the upcoming events either. And my job as an educator is to make sure that the students can see these, these eclipses. And uh, I don't sure, I'm not sure it's hit them yet right. that uh, this is going to happen with such an extraordinary event. Uh, I think it will. I think it will definitely happen uh, for the total eclipse once you get closer to it. And I am looking forward to that. The excitement about the event, I think, actually transcends my discipline. Everyone, regardless if they're interested or not, will be able to enjoy this spectacular event coming to them without having to uh, go here like people from all over the world are going to do. Right. What does it mean as an educator to have occur in this town with the profession you're in and you're the discipline you teach? Oh, I'm the luckiest astronomer in the country, I think, (laughs) in that I don't even have to go anywhere. And there's going to be two passing over my, uh, my hometown here. That, that may not be true. The luckiest is pro- probably where the 2017 shadow hits the 2024 shadow. So that would be Carbondale, Illinois. They're the luckiest. I'm the second luckiest. I'll take it back. Uh, you mentioned that you stand on the shoulder. I think you said you stood on the shoulder of giants around the uh, being able to calculate distances and other areas. Does that literally go back to the ancient Greeks who first charted the sky moving forward through the Middle Ages, or is it a little bit closer in time? The one we use now does, it's a little bit closer in time. The ancient Greeks, while they knew that the earth was round and had actually a pretty good idea of how big it was, they thought that it was geocentric. That is that the earth is at the center of the solar system, Mm -hmm. everything else uh, circles around it. We know now that is not true. Still, though, they could predict eclipses because they happen regularly. And if you just notice the the pattern in the eclipses, you can predict what's going to happen in the future, even if you don't really understand why. And so many cultures can actually do this. The Mayans could do this, uh, could predict when eclipses are going to happen in the future by observing the patterns, regardless if you know why such things occur. So that's pretty impressive, i got to say. Yeah. You can do that even though you don't really know why. How about the broader academic community that you may be a part of with other universities or universities in Texas or even the United States? Is there an excitement about uh, these upcoming eclipses between you and your professional colleagues? Oh, yes. The, uh, <clears throat> the community of astronomers is very excited for 
the total eclipse it is the time where you can actually see the outer layers of the sun yeah. without having a very expensive space telescope looking at it you can see it with your eyes when the uh, disk is blocked and so that's extremely exciting andrew yeah so what do you touched on this a little bit when you're talking about some of the ancient world and their ability to predict eclipses even though they didn't really know necessarily mm -hmm. what they were doing down to a scientific level what contributions can eclipses make to the scientific or astronomical community as a, as a whole or are, are we just set on the fact that we know when they occur like you said standing on the shoulders of giants we can know that all of those building blocks are in place or are we still discovering new things due to celestial events like an eclipse i don't know that we discover too many new things about them just because what you study is the sun and the sun is the by far the most well-studied star i think it is more of a reminder of that we're not even close to being the center of the either the universe or even though our own solar system when the, these things occur. They used to be very afraid of eclipses. Sure. For pretty good reason. Like you're not used to the sun being blocked out. Right, and you know, when you were talking about, I think about things in movies that you've seen where minds are doing some sacrifice of some kind and they predicted the eclipse, to, they knew it was gonna happen. Um, you know, that's what comes to mind there. So, uh, but so moving forward to thinking about the future and specifically around technological advancements, in, inside the astronomical community, I think that maybe we're on the cusp of something very large, I think, in, in, in that respect. Mainly, I'm thinking about the James Webb Telescope. Mm -hmm. So are there any advancements in technology that you can think of that, other than the James Webb Telescope, that are at the forefront of what's leading astronomy today? The James Webb Telescope is the, the latest large space telescopes have been sent out and that is done so that you don't have to deal with the blurring effect of the atmosphere called seeing if you put your telescope outside the atmosphere you don't have to get the blurring have you ever seen stars twinkle yes that's they... because the atmosphere moves while you're looking at it so that's uh pretty but it blurs the image and so out it goes into the uh, into the solar system if you can afford it and you can't repair it if it breaks. Right. Yeah, so it has some disadvantages. But the picture quality is spectacular. And that's because it's, what is it, 30 years younger than the Hubble Space Telescope, mm -hmm. which still works, even though it's sent up there with 1990 electronics. Yeah. Yeah, it's still stunning, right? That absolutely, so, it and, is. And so that will still work. And there are other, many other space telescopes that are also operating at the same time, uh, but in different wavelength regimes. There are ones for uh, mainly far infrared light, and then there's one for mainly infrared light, that's James Webb's uh, space telescope. And there are ones for ultraviolet, and there are ones for X-rays, there's ones for gamma rays out in space where you, you can see all wavelengths of light, most of which we can't see down here on the surface. Yeah. Is there anything about what's gone on with the James Webb Telescope that stood out to you that you've seen so far or heard about or read about? I like the pictures that it took of uh, the Eta Carina Nebula because that's a star forming region. And though I studied them 
for my dissertation. And that's just such great detail that you now can tell. The drawback is that the region is very large. And so to get a full picture, you have to take a picture here, a picture there and then stitch them together in the computer. And it's faint, so you have to sit on each picture for a long time. And so it takes a very long time to build up a picture like those pretty ones that they see. Yes. Tom? Where do you, if a student was listening to this or someone in high school and they wanted to follow a career in astronomy, what advice could you give them today? Go for it. If you are interested in something, then you should study it uh, to see if that is something that you want to uh, commit to trying to make your living out of. You, you only have one life, so it should be interesting to the greatest possible extent. And uh, I think you have proven the question I'm about to ask you, but can a person make a living in astronomy? Yes, you can make a living as an astronomer. Most astronomers do what I do, teach at uh, colleges and universities. There are also astronomers who can who work for NASA and work for the companies that NASA contracts to build, say, the James Webb Space Telescope. That was Ball Aerospace did that. They employ astronomers, too, for that purpose. And the way you're being educated, if you're an astronomer or if you're a physicist, is that you're quite good at figuring things out. And so if you can actually use that for transitioning into other fields, that is, I had people who I went to graduate school with who transitioned into quantitative finance. I knew there was a quantitative computing, but I didn't know yeah. there was quantitative finance. Quantitative, you can, uh, quantitative finance, because if you can run quantitative models on say, I don't know, building certain nuclei or how things decay on a subatomic level or doing a quantum mechanics problem that requires very large computations uh, to try to figure out, you can take those uh, quantitative skills and apply it to other fields, say finance or intelligence. Is, is there anything before we wrap up today that you want to leave our listeners with or anything that you want to mention that we did not cover? I didn't stress how extremely lucky we are to be right here in the path of two eclipses within a small amount of time. Andrew, if I ask you, this is, a, this is what happens to students, by the way, is that I throw questions yeah. at them. If you were to guess, and if you were just sitting around on your porch and just hoping for, wow, I wish I would see a total solar eclipse today, how long would you have to wait on your porch on average for one of them, you think? Hundreds of years. I would have said 12 or 13, but we had the 2017 eclipse, so I may be off. So the, uh, yes, you're about right. It's in the order of once every 400 years. Oh, wow. And that is because you have to be in the path of the dark part of the moon's shadow. And that's 120 miles wide. Okay. So you're in a strip that's 120 miles wide. And the moon and the earth and the sun does not care at all about who is in this path. And so 70% yeah. of the surface is water. So 70% of the time it happens over the ocean. Mm. And, so, and then most of the, the rest of the land of the uh, earth is not very populated. 
deserts right. and things like that. So to have it happen over a populated area is quite unusual. Over a given spot like us, it's once every 400 years, roughly. And that's the same for an annular eclipse, roughly. And so how lucky do you have to be to see two of them within a year if each one on average happens to a single spot each once per 400 years? So do I double that? Astronomically lucky. Is yes. To be yeah. That. yeah. Do I double yeah. that or do I square it? <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is more on the squaring uh, yeah. side of calculations there. That's how, that's how lucky we are. We don't even have to move to see these things. It's amazing. People will come here for the explicitly so that they have a chance to see the total eclipse. Many thousands of people are, are going to come here is my prediction. Yeah. And they have to come here to see the total eclipse. We don't have to go anywhere to see the total eclipse. That is how lucky we are right here. I know, and I think I speak for a lot of, of us that live in and around this area that we're planning on, for the most part, just being on lockdown. And we'll be at the, we live, luckily, that my wife and I live close to a golf course, and I'll be home that day. School's not going to be in that day. And Gilbert and I are not planning on coming to the office. I'm planning on walking, strolling right out of my backyard and being able to see it right there. Yeah, there, you, you do have to prepare a little bit for when a small, small town like this has visitors, more visitors than people who live here. You do have to prepare a little bit for that. But that's all. You can do that. You can prepare. Yeah. And as long as you do, the that you have to prepare shouldn't take away from the fact that the universe is bringing on a spectacular event here. You don't have to travel to western the western part of the Indian Ocean like some people do for eclipse cruises. You don't have to do that. You just have to stay. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't think that anyone will be disappointed unless it's cloudy. I, yeah, I was just thinking that. I know that's the one thing that could throw us off, but either way, we're extremely excited about it. Thank you so much, Dr. Arvinson, for joining us today. We're happy to talk to you. Glad you were able You're to You're most it. welcome, and thank you for having me. You bet. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Night Skies. If you are interested in eclipses or if you have an eclipse story to share, if you've lived through an eclipse, been through an eclipse, we'd love to have you on our podcast. So please give us a shout out. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This podcast is a special production of the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network. If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast and you're in the Hill Country, I hope you will uh, also give us a shout. We'd love to talk to you about coming on to the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network, the only podcast network for the Texas Hill Country and its surroundings.